All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 I guess with that, we'll begin our Rants with Justin and Joe section. Uh, we worked very hard on that theme song, and I thank uh, Alex and Jackson for being backup lyricists. I mean, and that just shows off my superb capabilities with working with audio on computers. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. High quality. <laughs> Rhino, if this behavior analysis thing doesn't work out, I know where I'm going. Rhino can learn from you clearly. <laughs> of how to how to do this technology thing yeah that's the way it would work him <laughs> learning from me mm -hmm. sure sure all right everybody welcome to rants with justin and joe i am one of your hosts justin and our other host is joe and we have a special guest uh appearance by one julia ferguson hi julia hi guys thanks for having me yeah thanks for being a part of this so today's rant section uh, session is going to be about ACT and really a critical uh, analysis of ACT uh, as we've seen from people at least who signed up not people all that are here uh, this seems to be a very popular topic and intervention so I think it'll be interesting what uh, we have to say and then comments from you uh, just to go over the structure once again uh, we figure this one's going to be an hour long we don't have we don't think uh, we don't think that uh, it's going to be any less than an hour. And so uh, we will be talking for a good little while. And then as questions come up from you guys in the Q&A part, part, we will be using those to, um, we'll be addressing those. Just There's already know. one. <laughs> what? There's already a question in the Q&A. Eventually, we're going to figure out who this anonymous person is that keeps <laughs> crashing. Julia, uh, is that you again? It's uh, definitely not me. <laughs> Uh, so just so you guys remember, we do get CEUs for this. And so, uh, Joe, you can type this in. You need to email me at the conclusion of this at jbl.par at aol.com. And uh, you need to put in your name, your BCBA number, and then the beginning word and the ending word. And the beginning word, uh, keyword for today is science. Science. So. Put, remember, email me at the conclusion, name, BCBA number, the keyword, beginning word science. I'll give the ending word towards the end. And I will probably get it to you guys over the weekend. I would usually do it on Friday, but I'm giving another talk somewhere virtually. And so I just won't have time on Friday. So with that, I guess I'll, ask, I'll take the first question and then let Joe and Julia do a little bit of the talking. They're the experts in this. Uh, what is ACT? Okay, um, well, sure, we can try to answer that, but I think it's, it's also important to put in context how we're talking about this right now, because I think ACT means a few different things right now. Um, so I think ACT1 refers to acceptance commitment therapy, 
Uh, and that has a whole psychoanalytic literature, has lots of RCTs that have been done with that and addresses some, some various problems. Um, some might be related to human behavior, some might not. Uh, the way that we're talking about it right now um, is acceptance and commitment training. Uh, and that's a, we're doing that specifically because there's just been an increase in uh, the ACT-related, acceptance commitment therapy-related workshops, presentations, papers, uh, just flooding our field right now. Uh, and that's been followed by a lot of questions from behavior analysts if, if ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, fits within our scope of competence or practice. And there's been a lot of prominent behavior analysts that have addressed those questions by saying, well, ACT therapy doesn't but ACT training does, uh, because we're behavior analysts, we work with training all the time, where you know, that's, that's, that's our bread and butter. We can train behavior, we can train people. So acceptance commitment training does fit within our scope of competence in our practice, and it is ABA, is what's being espoused. So that's what we're choosing to take a deeper dig into, um, or a deeper dive into, is acceptance commitment training, not necessarily therapy. So all of that we're going to talk about today is going to be related to with that training moniker, not therapy. Uh, I, that doesn't 100% answer the question, uh, but I'll stop talking to see if anybody else wants to chime in for right now. I, not right now, if you want to follow right. up with the definition. Yeah, so, so I think the question is, what is ACT? And I'm gonna answer that as, what is acceptance commitment training? Is tough for me to answer. And it's not tough because I haven't tried to figure out what ACT is. I've gone to multiple workshops. I've paid to go to workshops to learn about what ACT is. Uh, I've been in touch with a lot of the literature and we'll talk about a literature review that we've done on acceptance commitment training a little bit today as well. Um, so I'm pretty familiar, I would say, pretty intimate with the literature. And I think the tricky part is I can't tell you what ACT is no matter how hard I've tried. Uh, it, it's, it's much different from things like if I see someone implementing discrete trial teaching, I can tell you what discrete trial teaching is. I can even provide you a task analysis for it and, and hand it to you and have you do it and say, yes, that's discrete trial teaching. I can't do the same for ACT no matter how hard I've tried. Much of what I found has been exercises um, that describe metaphors for things that you could or could not do in different situations. So I think there's lots of variability if you ask someone, what is ACT? I, I agree with you. Um, and I find that to be one of the reasons why I personally am very critical of acceptance and commitment training. It seems like I've, I haven't gone to a workshop like you, but I've seen lots of talks. I've read lots of papers. We did a lit review on acceptance and commitment training, and I'm still not sure what it is. And I think going back to kind of your intro on the topic is that it seems very concerning to me because it is kind of having like an uprising in the field. You're seeing it everywhere you go at major conferences, at talks. It's kind of the number one thing right now um, during this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, behavior analysis and practice put out a special issue regarding COVID-19. And from the articles I've been able to find that have just been accepted, a lot of them are just preprint that you can find through a different website, not online through behavior analysis and practice. But of the 14 that I could find, I think there's been a total of 20 accepted that might have changed by now. But six have to do with acceptance and commitment training, values-based 
kind of papers or mindfulness. So that's over 40% of the articles that have come out on a special issue about COVID-19, which to me just seems kind of odd. There's a lot of things to do with behavior analysis. This is our main practice journal. I think it's a great resource or has been. And 40% of the articles coming out right now are about ACT, which I think is just kind of wild because there's just so much more to the field. Yeah. So it seems like we have two areas, right? One, what the hell is it? And two, it seems to be getting popular despite many people not knowing what it really is. So I'm not sure which way you guys want to go with that. Um, but well, I want to go the what the hell is it anyways route because I can say that some people that are much more experienced in ACT than I am have given presentations to describe um, like what at least the goals of ACT are. So maybe we can take it from that perspective. If we can't necessarily define like what the physical makeup is of it, like what, what would we need to see someone do to say that's ACT? Maybe we can start with, all right, so what are the goals of ACT anyways? Um, and from what I've read and from what I've experienced from, from those prominent behavior analysts talking about it is one of the big goals is to decrease experiential avoidance. So maybe we can, I'll go over all the goals that, I, that I've heard about that, and maybe this will help us understand what it actually is, because if we know what it's trying to do, then maybe that will lead us to what it actually is and what it's doing to address those goals. So one is decrease experiential avoidance. Another one is to loosen up control that verbal stimuli have over overt behavior. That and, and they look at this from well, verbal stimuli can be overt or covert, and they talk about overt as talking and covert as thinking. Um, and we're fine with that because Skinner 45 said overt and covert behavior have the same function. Um, so, what ACT is really about is decreasing control by maladaptive rules that are based in this whole verbal world that we live in. Any thoughts or comments on that from, from the, my fellow panelists? Um, well, I guess my first comment is I think that's one definition or goals. I'm sorry, you weren't providing a definition of goals of ACT, but I also think there's, within the literature I've read on it, there's also disagreement about that it's not rule-based and they want to get away from, it's not just a set of rules because that would be rule-governed behavior and that's something different. So I also think you're right because I do hear that, but then from other people that's wrong and that's not what it is because they want to get away from things that have probably previously been defined and analyzed in the field and one of them being rule-governed behavior. Sure, I completely agree. And I think to me the problem is, um, isn't, ACT isn't a problem. I don't see a problem with ACT. It, it, I'll take the, the Hank Schlinger approach. If it's helping people, great. I have no problems with that. Keep doing it if it's helping people. My problem is when people are saying that it's either ABA or it allows us to do things that ABA hasn't done yet um, because of the restrictions of ABA looking at it from one perspective or another. So to me, that's where the problem comes in. So when I see things like these goals of let's decrease experiential avoidance, well, what, what the hell is experiential or experiential avoidance? Like, if we, if we look at it from a behavior analytic perspective, well, we know what avoidance is. We have a, lot of, a wide uh, spectrum of literature on avoidance. I think we understand avoidance pretty well. And all avoidance would have to be experiential if we're talking about it in terms of contingencies, right? Like we avoid things because we've contacted them in the past and they might have had a, a punishing function, right? Uh, so like we're fine there, um, but why do, why do we need to call it, like why are we throwing this additional thing on it? And if it is just uh, 
you know, preventing avoidance. Well, we have a large literature in the behavior analytic world. So um, what is ACT bringing that behavior analysis hasn't in terms of that? And um, why are we using these other terms to describe, are they new behavioral phenomenon? Because I don't think there's evidence of that. I agree. I, I think all of those points are things, criticisms that I have of ACT. I keep thinking they're putting some sort of new spin on things that I feel like can be explained through the principles of behavior analysis we are all familiar with already and have evidence behind them. And I feel like it's just kind of repainting it a different way. So if it can address something else, I'm not quite sure what it is or can explain something else. I haven't been able to understand it, which is another one of my criticisms of ACT training is that as a behavior analyst who is very familiar with quite a bit of research, feels very competent in the principles, for me not to be able to understand something behavior analytic where I feel like I should be able to, reading enough articles, going to enough talks, going to workshops, and not being able to understand it, I think is very concerning. Um, and that's not just for me. I've talked to other you know, behavior analysts who've been in the field for a long time that feel this way. They said they've gone to, you know, 10 different workshops, don't understand what it is, don't, don't quite understand the goals of it. And I even talked to somebody that's a prominent, like, ACT researcher, and from their mouth, they said it took them over five years to fully understand what ACT is. Now, I find that to be very odd and kind of, once again, concerning because it doesn't take us five years to understand what a discrete trial is. It doesn't understand, it doesn't take us five years to fully understand what the principle of reinforcement is. I think that's a really long time to not fully grasp a behavior analytic procedure or concept. Yeah, so I think, um, I, I agree, Julia. I, I know your history a little bit in terms of your behavior analytic training, and I agree. You should be able to handle this stuff and understand it. And I grapple with it too, uh, and in terms of understanding it from a behavior analytic perspective. And I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on the conceptual underpinnings and the philosophy of behavior analysis. Um, so I think, how do we feel about, there's a whole bunch of questions coming in and I'm worried that we're not gonna get to it if we, if we can continue to do this. So maybe we let them drive this just a little bit because we're already talking about a little bit of the whole hexaflex thing. And there's a question that says, what the heck is a hexaflex? Um, so maybe we can dive into that uh, because there's been several talks uh, at behavior analytic conferences about hexaflex. In fact, our APF conference had uh, uh, one of the, Jonathan Tardbox, uh, talked about ACT and talked about uh, the hexaflex. And there's, uh, and he made the joke that it's, you know, it's intentionally wishy-washy um, in terms of calling it hexaflex. So I don't think we need to, I, I don't care what, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but let's dive into the things that are supposed to be behavior analytic about the hexaflex. So the first thing is values. And there is just a recent paper that was published in Perspectives of Behavior Sciences talking about values um, from a contextual behavior analytic approach or contextual behavior science approach. Um, so maybe we can dive into, all right, so what the heck are values from the behavior analytic perspective? If, if this is behavior analysis, what would a values be from behavior analytic perspective? Some of the, and maybe to start this going, some of the explanations that I've been given are that um, values are stimuli um, that are in equivalence classes that are largely verbally constructed of delayed powerful positive reinforcers, and I'm quoting here. Um, values are connecting behavior toward values, deriving rules that describe how behaviors result in positive reinforcers. Values are positive reinforcement, rule deriving as alternative to avoidance behavior. Um, so 
what about values from a behavior analytic perspective? Uh, is this a thing? What are you, you're asking if it's a thing? Yeah. Yeah. So what do we think about values from a behavior analytic perspective? Um, so in the paper that you're talking about, um, I read that as well. And um, the Skinner definition, I'm trying to find it, is, um, is a list of reinforcers conditioned or otherwise. If it's that definition, then, then yes, I, I think values are behavior analytic and that fits within um, our behavior analytic framework. Um, but the rest of the paper, as it goes on, and the definition it ends with, I don't find to align with um, a conceptualization of behavior analysis or within that framework. Um, they start to kind of go into values are augmentals. I'm not sure what an augmental is. They say that Skinner's definition doesn't quite get at what a value is because you get coffee every day or you drink water every day. That could be a value by Skinner's definition, but it's you said this in the paper but you also value being a good father and they didn't feel like those two things weighed quite the same so i don't know what and then they kind of go on to explain why those can't be exactly the same but at the end of the day i'm not sure why they can't necessarily be the same i think one sounds more meaningful to us but i think it's the actions you kind of take day to day that for me fit to what about what you kind of value day to day? I don't know. Yeah, and I, I, I put the, I think that's a, a very good point and, and a good description of that article and some of the points there. I put the reference in the chat box for anyone who's interested in, in what we're referring to here. Um, it just came out in 2020, although I think it was uh, available advance online for a while. But I think the problem is we're, we start with this hexaflex thing and we start with values at the top of it and assume that that is a thing. Um, so, and it's a thing just like a response is, it's a thing just like reinforcement is, it's a behavioral phenomenon, but we've documented for a long time that what reinforcement is and how reinforcement works. We know that that's a behavioral phenomenon. The problem is we're starting with that premise with values, even though I'm unaware of any research that's documented that as a behavioral phenomenon, as something different than all of the other behavioral phenomenon that's been documented. So it, it, if we're, it, it, I think it's a false premise to try to define something um, that we don't know exists in, in, in the world of behavior analysis or the world of just natural sciences from the beginning. So it's like we're chasing down a description or a definition of something, assuming that it exists outside of or within, within our behavioral constructs. And I, I'm not sure that it does. So, I mean, are they stimuli? Are they reinforcers? If they are just reinforcers, then why do we need an alternative description for them? Like if it functions that same way in that article, um, the authors define or talk about values from a behavioral pattern. So if you engage in a pattern of behavior, you value that pattern of behavior. So like uh, a, a pattern of behavior you might have is going running. So if you constantly go running, then you value running. Um, the problem is, what does that add to a behavioral analysis of the actual behavior that's occurring? I'm not sure anything. Uh, it's just a pattern of behavior. Calling it something then makes us chase down um, the causes of that in that whole value-based thing. So now I need to, to, to like me saying you run because you value, behavior, value running, now I need to say, now I need to answer, why do you value running? Um, so it puts us down this path that doesn't actually get us to functional relationships. 
I agree with that. I think that was one thing in that paper that we're talking about that I found to be missing was any type of history for whoever it may be, how something became a value, say it exists, say it value is something. There was no um, emphasis on how something becomes a value, what kind of history would be at play. It just seemed like name something that's a value to you. Like, okay, well, my value is being honest. Well, how did, how did that come to be, if that's a value of yours? And to me, my answer as behavior analyst would be a history of reinforcement for um, honest behavior or something like that. And, you know, a history of reinforcement and punishment around it. And they don't talk about that. And then it also said, we're kind of talking about it as reinforcers. But then at one point in the paper, they reference something and say that, this is a quote from it, they, that Hayes 2012 explains that values cannot technically be considered as reinforcers because they cannot be achieved. And that's what really like spun me around. I was like, wait, what is it then? What cannot be achieved? Everything is just kind of dense in the language to me and it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense if I'm gonna be honest. Sure, well, and I think there's um, some, there, there was a comment that was like, uh, these are terms that might help sell it to the public. Uh, or let me let me go back the middle level terms was used um, and how they're problematic like again I have to go back to if you want to call values reinforcers to help what you're going to sell to the public to, to increase the social validity of what you're going to do then call it values by all means people are going to be jump more onto saying well you do that because you you value the outcome or because you value running um, that's totally fine Inter instead of well, you run because of the reinforcement you might uh, obtain from the social environment by staying fit or some other reason why you might be running. Uh, the public's going to eat that up a lot better by calling it values than, than us providing our technical definition of why it actually is occurring. Uh, but the problem comes in when you start to say, this is behavior analysis. Like that puts it under a whole nother microscope that if you're gonna call it behavior analysis, then you should be open to these types of, uh, of assessments and these analyses. Like you need to be able to say, what is a value from a behavior analytic perspective? And if you wanna say, all right, it's just reinforcement. We just call it values to you know, get the public in on it. Great, but then tell me that. And right now it doesn't seem like there's a, there's a, a universal agreement on what that actually is from anybody that's talking about act training or act therapy. So right now you guys are talking, if I'm trying to conceptualize this, and you guys are much smarter than me on, on this terminology stuff, is you're talking about a DV here, right? And, and there's problems with the DV, values would be the DV, right? Uh, it, not necessarily, it, I mean, it, it would depend. Because for me, it's, I don't know what they're doing. How do you change someone's values? How do you get them to, one of the questions is, how do you get them to be less anxious? How do you, how do you get them to do that? And I think that's unclear to me, sitting in these, these workshops um, and these lectures and reading these papers, is it's not even clear what they do on a moment to moment basis, right? And I'm wondering, you guys have dug deeper into this, is that clear to you guys at all of, of what, what the teaching looks like? I can take it. Really? So I, we, like we, Joe and I were alluding to, we conducted um, an ACT training lit review. There have been many conducted or several conducted for ACT therapy. Um, 
which are mainly published outside of behavior analytic journals, the articles that have been found, but we decided that we should do an ACT training lit review because if it is different than ACT therapy, then it should be, a separate lit review should be conducted. So um, we analyzed 21 studies that we found and looked at them for the, like, the type of design they implemented. Was it you know, convincing evidence-wise? Then we also looked at their independent variables. Was it described appropriately enough to be replicable um, from an outsider? And then we also looked at like treatment fidelity and a couple other measures. And from, I'm trying to look at my notes for it, but we, none, none, none of the 21 were clearly explained in the IV. A lot of them referenced other curriculum books or pointed um, the reader in another direction. And then if they did do an explanation, it was a lot of like, examples we did this exercise and this exercise or this exercise but nothing was explained fully for us to actually be able to implement it ourselves so there's books you can look at or manuals that they referred you to for the actual interventions conducted in these act training studies but i'm still unclear exactly what the interventions would look like yeah i think that's a great description so uh, of the the study that we did, which is currently under review in Java. Uh, so we'll, and we asked for it to be blinded uh, for both sides. So we'll see what the feedback is that we get on that. Um, hopefully it sees the light of day sometime and can extend this conversation to, I, I think uh, just continuing the, the, the course of discourse, um, professional discourse in this field. And hopefully some people can provide a little bit more explanation for us. Uh, but I think we, the reason that we did that study is because I have got, I have tried and I have tried and I have tried to learn what ACT is. Um, so I could bring it back to our clinic and say, hey, this is a useful thing that we could use for X participants or X, X clients, whatever that client base might be that might benefit from it. But being in those workshops and those trainings that I've gone to, I had nothing that I could take back and say, all right, let's do this when this happens. Um, I, I've gone to several trainings uh, on other behavior analytic approaches and been able to bring it back and say, all right, so in this situation, when this problem behavior is occurring, maybe this might be an approach that we can take. And I've walked away with things that I can actually use from a behavior analytic perspective. I haven't been able to do that with ACT. And it's not for, for lack of trying. And I'm going to continue to try that because, again, I, I want to make sure that I understand it um, uh, from a behavior analytic perspective, if people are going to call it behavior analysis, but there's been lots of studies that have been published in Java that have evaluated various approaches uh, and various research lines about, well, can you pick this up and actually run it? Can you pick this up and do it? Has it been described in a technological way? Uh, does it meet the criteria that we would say is applied behavior analytic research? Uh, so we use that to help guide how we did this research. Uh, and we tried to look at it from a very unbiased perspective, and we made sure that there was multiple levels of IOA to make sure that we were doing that. And unfortunately, if you look at it, uh, the majority of them either say, go buy this book, um, which I think is a dangerous thing, or they don't provide an, a description of the IV well enough to where you'd be able to replicate it. I mean, isn't that so anti-scientific then? So anti what we stand for as a behavior analytic community? I don't know if I'd go as far as saying that it's anti-science. I don't, I don't think- Not anti-science anti in the way like anti-science of Gina Green, but so, and uh, that she talks about. But so what, like when you publish research, you're supposed to have a clear IV section. You're supposed to put it in a way that someone can pick it up and reasonably know what you did, reasonably replicate the procedures. 
if that happened in zero, I think I have 20 or 21 studies that Julia uh, referred to and across multiple workshops, isn't that problematic on some level? I think to asking people to buy commercially available products um, so, so they can do what was done in, in a research project in a, in a peer reviewed research project, I think is dangerous because there's, there's room for conflicts of interest there. Uh, like I want to get my stuff published so people can see it. So they go and buy my stuff. So they use that, especially when the same authors are the authors of the research project and the authors of the commercially available products. I think that's dangerous. Uh, I think if you're going to do research, you need to describe the IVs well enough so other people can replicate it. Not so other people or not to a degree to where someone's going to have to buy something else to be able to do it. Uh, like that's science. I can't, I can't replicate your findings. Like our field is based on replicating uh, single subject design, single subject research to help increase the generality of our findings. I can't do that if I don't understand your IV well enough because it wasn't described well enough in the research project. So I think that's a, that's a dangerous thing altogether. And I think we found it uh, as it related to acceptance commitment training literature. But I think there's definitely other areas that that happens and not just specifically to act. So should we keep diving in? I, I don't think we're going to get to all of these questions this time. We might have to do a part two. Um, because we just touched on values and it's a hexaflex. So there's lots yeah, of Yeah, I was about to say, we didn't even go through the hexaflex. We didn't get, we didn't get to diffusion or. Yeah, but I'm thinking, I mean, I'm thinking of what you guys are saying on if it's conceptually systematic with ABA and if it's written or described in a way that can lead to replication, which is a hallmark of science. Why is it gained so much popularity? Why is it becoming more and more prevalent in social media, in conferences? As Julia said, 40% uh, to date in a COVID-19 special edition where things like discrete trial teaching or functional analysis or behavioral skills training haven't been even represented yet in those issues. And those are commonly done. So I'm just kind of wondering why you guys think it's grown so much so quickly. Julia, you want to take that one? Um, sure. I mean, I think probably a reason it's growing so rapidly and we're seeing it so often is because I think we as behavior analysts are probably missing something that we're not addressing with how we're probably speaking to other people, what we're kind of implementing. I know a lot of it has to do with um, kind of anxious behaviors, anxiety, depression, um, and the from the lit review we did conduct, almost all of the participants were typically developing adults. And I also just want to take the time there to say that I know it's showing up at a lot of our autism-related conferences or in talks and things like that, but the evidence as it stands right now and what we've been able to find, there was only one study that included individuals with a diagnosis of autism that were what you would deem higher functioning and probably in their upper elementary middle school age, but that's one. And so although it's kind of growing maybe for that population now, the evidence is not out there. Um, but I think it has been shown to be effective, especially if we're talking about ACT therapy um, in their journals and the psychology journals has shown it to be effective addressing some issues that we're not addressing um, as behavior analysts um, in terms of like kind of mental health or things like that. So I think maybe it's growing that way. And I'll also say when I looked at the COVID-19 issue, it was talking about ACT as it applies to like parent training, so parent support, 
even self-care for behavior analysts. But I think it is at the same time getting twisted to where people are doing it with individuals with autism right now. And what we know is that early intervention works, the articles have nothing to do with ACT when it's shown um, behavior, applied behavior analysis to be effective with that population. So I think we just need to be careful, but I do think it's gaining popularity because we're probably not addressing something. It has to come from somewhere, so. Well, and I think let's, I'm, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. Jonathan Tarbox is a brilliant behavior analyst and he is a wonderful presenter. And when you have someone that's a brilliant behavior analyst and a wonderful presenter and they're talking about a topic, people are going to gain interest in it. Uh, just like, you know, when you have Hanley, who's a brilliant behavior analyst uh, and he's talking about uh, the practical functional assessment, people are going to pick up on the practical functional assessment. Now, I left research completely out of those two examples, but I think that's one of the reasons why ACT is starting to, to gain a little bit more traction in our field and we're starting to see it happen everywhere because there's people that are great presenters and great behavior analysts that are talking about it. And I think when you pair that with something that was said in the chat box, to where we have a, a, a burgeoning number of people that are practitioners within our field that don't necessarily have the training um, that a lot of people are lucky enough or privileged enough to get access to to make them thoroughgoing behavior analysts because you don't need to be a thoroughgoing behavior analyst to get a job as a practitioner in this field anymore. So if you don't, if you're not a thoroughgoing behavior analyst, and I say that as a radical behaviorist that understands the philosophical underpinnings of our science, and someone is talking about something that isn't that doesn't sound quite behavior analytic, but they're saying it's behavior analytic, then you're not going to ask those questions. You're just going to pick it up into your practice. So I think when you have those two things happening at once, then that's why we're seeing this influx uh, of acceptance commitment training, especially when you have people say, well, if you call it training, now it fits within your scope of competence and scope of practice as a certified behavior analyst. Yeah, I would say that's another thing as well. I think um, I think you mentioned it a, a little bit earlier ago, Joe, but uh, Ryan O with the Daily BA did an interview with Hank Schlinger last year around this time that's posted and you can Google it and find it on his YouTube channel, but he talks about a lot of these issues in general about kind of the field going a different direction. He talks about ACT, he talks about RFT, he talks about ABAI kind of promoting certain things and behavior analysts kind of just following suit if they don't have that level of skepticism and critical thinking that have been taught to them in a university program. So it might be a concern with a lot of new behavior analysts. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think that causes lots of other concerns. And, and, and maybe this is probably the smallest bit of the concerns, but since it's growing and continuing to be seen in lots of different places, and people are saying that it's, it's, it's just behavior analysis, and this is why it's behavior analysis, but not providing an, uh, uh, enough information as to why it is or isn't a behavior analysis, then I think it causes, it's starting to create more and more of a problem. And again, I wanna say, if this is solving problems for people, if this is useful for people, keep doing it. The, but the problem is, if you're gonna say it's behavior analysis, well, now you have to fall under criticism of if it is behavior analysis or if it isn't behavior analysis, and you should be able to stand up to that criticism and provide those explanations. And I don't think so far we've been able to do that. There's so many questions. Oh my goodness. Um, Where do you wanna go next? Uh, I'm just trying to go through them in order. So there, I think this is from a previous one, ACT has goals. It is a method of treatment that can be applied a, a, across a range of goals. I was, when I said um, that ACT has goals, 
I was referring to a, a presentation that has been done on ACT about how it is behavior analytic and that these were the what were described as the big picture goals uh, in terms of, of ACT. So I think we've already touched on that one. Um, throw it back on in the Q&A if I hadn't. Um, the next one is how would behavior analysts address anxiety? I don't want to be, I don't want to monopolize the conversation. Does anybody else want to jump in on that one? Well, I think it's hard to know without seeing uh, the client firsthand, but I think there's other procedures such as systematic desensitization would be one way that you could go about and reduce anxiety. And I think the problem is people don't know as much about systematic desensitization today as behavior analysts um, in previous years. and. Uh, with that, I mean, I don't, exp yeah, I think it takes training to go through and learn about systematic desensitization. You wouldn't know completely about systematic desensitization by just reading one book or one article, but you would at least understand the premise of what they are doing and get further training on how to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a, a big um, literature base looking at systematic desensitization, but I think it's also important to look at, well, what is anxiety from a behavior analytic perspective? And there's been lots of, of research that has looked at that. Um, there's a Pat Fryman article that looked that it was published in Java. It does have a little bit of act in it. Um, so, please, but all of the, the whole IV is completely described. The DV is overt behavior. So they behavioralized it. Um, and so I think if we continue to do that, that's a great example of how we can move forward through this. Um, but I don't see enough people necessarily doing that. But I think about anxiety from a behavior analytic perspective as an unavoidable punishing either stimulus or event or something. Like uh, think about when you experience what you would label as anxiety right before you go and give a talk, something like this. Uh, I know that I can't necessarily avoid this thing. Um, so it, and it's potentially punishing. Uh, but I'm going to have to go and do it anyways. Those are the conditions under which we would typically talk about anxiety. So how would we address that from a behavior analytic perspective? We have a, a, a whole bunch of literature that would help us on that in our field. Hope that helped answer that question. I don't understand the next one, who do not follow ACT. So I'm going to dismiss that one. And, and who, whoever put that one wants to rephrase it and throw it back in, please do. Um, the next one, I think we already touched on values, our values, actual behavior. Um, if we go back to that article, they would talk about values in terms of a pattern of behavior, but I don't think that there's a, based on that article, I think even within the field of ACT, whether it's training or, or therapy, there's not a widely accepted definition of what values are. So I, I've, I've done my research on trying to figure out what values are. Um, but some people talk about them as stimuli and equivalence classes. Some talk about them as patterns of behavior. Some talk about them as um, positive reinforcers, but then some people say, well, they're not reinforcers. Um, there's something else. Julia said, well, there's a, there's a Hayes definition that says, well, it can't be a reinforcer because it's not achievable. So then is it, is it just verbal behavior talking about something that I want to access? Well, but saying that me, me saying, well, I want to be a 5k runner, um, or I want to go to the moon wouldn't necessarily say that that's a value, even though it might not be accessible. Um, we would have to say, well, what were the conditions under which I said that? We would have to des describe and understand that specific instance of behavior. I don't know, Julia, do you want to add anything else about our values, actual behavior? 
Yeah, um, I'm going to agree with you that I'm not quite sure after trying to find the definition as well. It doesn't seem like there's consensus. I think Bob just popped that in the chat. Um, there does not seem to be consensus from what I've read. And it also, even if you go to like just a, a verbal statement or something of, that you value, that's one thing they say. But then they say, but it's not just that because then it's just rule governed at that point. So there seems to be like some back and forth and some circular arguments and difficulty defining exactly what a value is. So I'm not sure. It doesn't seem like they want it to be an actual behavior or a pattern of behavior, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, well, and I think, again, the, the problem is, well, our value is a thing. Like, first you have to give me evidence that values are a thing. Uh, and right now, I don't think that there's evidence that they are a thing that's a distinct behavioral phenomenon from something else. Um, all right, so can you screen share the hexaflex? Well, it's backwards. Justin has it behind him. There you go. You're missing the top and the bottom. Yeah, right? it cut off. I, you know, I was a quick trying to get it on. Mm -hmm. But if you Google hexaflex act, it'll come up as right away as an image. Um, I just got a note that um, people that in the chat box are chatting to just us panelists and they're not sending it to everybody. So if you're responding to someone, um, you're probably responding to just us and not necessarily the comment in the chat that you were wanting to respond to. So, so keep that in mind. Um, the next question is, um, when you can only give examples of what could be a value, but you cannot technically define it, it is not a real thing discussed. I think we just touched on that, yeah. right? I think that's been the main kind of point. All right, this one's specifically to you, Julia. Okay. How do you practice ACT? I don't. Um, I like to think that I'm very skeptical, which is a, a hallmark of science. I like to have evidence. I like to understand something, see the research, functional relationships between IVs and DVs for me to support it. Um, I will be open like I think anybody should to seeing future evidence and research coming on out about ACT or any conceptualizations that I think fit within a behavioralic framework and if they can fully technologically define things and explain it and have a somewhat of a consensus, um, I'm willing to accept it. But right now I do not practice ACT. I'm still trying to understand it and that's kind of the point of this talk is the critical aspects and being critical of something that's kind of introduced into the field and is very prevalent right now. I think that was a wonderful model of a scientific approach. I can't wait for us to do another one of these rants to where I can go back and, and I can recant some of the things that I've said um, because there's new evidence for me to go by. I'm just waiting for that evidence uh, to exist. And with our extensive reviews of the literature and everything that we've gone through in terms of trainings and workshops and, and presentations, I'm not sure that, that there is that evidence right now. So I would be, I'd be more than happy um, as a scientist, because I view myself as a scientist first, behavior analyst second, um, to say, hey, there's this new evidence. Let's now talk about the new evidence on, look, they've, they've um, provided a view as to what a value is from behavior. This is how you measure values. This is how it's defined from behavior analyst perspective. This is what it is, and this is why it's different from these other behavioral phenomena that we have. I can't wait for that day to happen, and I hope it does. Uh, and I'm being completely sincere. I, I hope it's not, I can be sarcastic sometimes. I'm not being sarcastic right now. Like I'm I felt the same. same. Yeah, like, like once that evidence <laughs> happens, like I, I think that's great. And I think there's some brilliant minds that are looking at this right now and hopefully they get down there. But right now, I think some of the things that are being said about ACT and ACT as ABA are a little bit beyond their data. 
I agree. And I would just like to say, I agree with you that like scientists, behavior analysts kind of first second, I like to think like I take a skeptical approach to anything I read. I tear up any article I read. I like to really question like the IVs, the DVs, what do you mean here? Any intro and discussion, like conclusions. So it's not just ACT that I apply this to. It's definitely everything. But ACT is kind of at the forefront of my mind because I keep having these questions. I am very skeptical of what I've read. We've done the lit review, looked at the evidence, and it's just not there for me at this point. So. Yep. All right. Let's jump into the next question. I don't know if people can see these, so I'm reading them for everyone. Um, how many years did it take you to master being a behavior analyst? Prior to your master's degree, if you went to a workshop on ABA, would you have expected to be able to immediately go back and run a session with a learner to mastery? That is, my concern with the panelists' concerns with ACT is that you are expecting to go to a few workshops and understand it fully. I guess I'll take this one. Okay. Um, if you guys don't mind. Is that, you know, I think what we're saying is not that it doesn't take a long time to become a master at behavior analysts. I think all three of us would agree that we're constantly and continuously learning about behavior analysis and the application of applied behavior analysis into intervention to individuals with autism or parents or whatever. So I guess I'm going to rephrase what Julia is talking about and what I was saying as well, and as well as Joe, is it's not that after uh, years that you become a master at it. And it's not after years that you, you're so confidently good that that's the problem. The problem for me is that after a workshop, one, two, three, I don't know how many you've been to, Joe. I think I've been to at least eight, or ten, eight to 10 talks, probably on them, hour-long talks. And after reading 20 articles, probably more, some that were probably excluded, but uh, 20 articles, that you would have some basic knowledge and basic understanding of those procedures of how to implement um, ACT. This doesn't mean that you'd be uh, a masterful clinician in implementing it or behavior analyst, but you would be able to identify what the components are. So I'll go back to what you, your analogy is, let's say on practical functional assessment, PFA or ISCA, Hanley's thing, right? You would go to a Hanley workshop or one of his students or, or people that do it and or read his, his uh, articles and you would have a basic premise of what he does, what those questions are in the informed interview, how he conducts the functional analysis setting and then what the treatment is. It doesn't mean that you would after attending a few workshops or attending or reading a few articles that you can do that to a high degree of quality. I don't think that's what we're digging act on. It's that you can read or attend those and know somewhat of what he's doing and then get further training and get further expertise. At least from my perspective, I don't feel that's what the case is with ACT. I can't read those 20 articles that Julia referred to and have an understanding of what they implement. I can't attend those talks and really know what they're doing. I think that's the difference between at least my concern with ACT. I think um, that's, that's a, a great answer. And I think I have to take it part by part. I wouldn't consider myself a, a master behavior analyst. Um, yeah, I have my, my master's and my PhD, uh, but I'm continually trying to learn more and more about our science. And it's a complex science, and I think people don't necessarily understand that. Uh, I, like the, the easy descriptions of things that we have, like reinforcement is just 
um, uh, something that follows a behavior that increases the, the, the probability of that behavior in future instances. That's not a definition of reinforcement. That's not a full understanding of reinforcement. And I think we have to continue to try to master those things and learn those things. Uh, and I don't want to be on here and say that I'm an expert or a master in act. Um, what I want, what I'm coming on this from a perspective is I have more experience with ABA. I have more experience with uh, from behavior analytic perspective, and I've put in my due diligence, and I'm continuing to put in due diligence to learn about ACT uh, because people are saying that it's behavior analysis or it's this thing in addition to behavior analysis because it addresses things that behavior analysis can't address. Um, so when you threaten our science with boundaries then I have to look at it. I have to look at it because that's my science. I love my science and, and everything our science has touched, it's improved upon. Everywhere our science goes, it improves upon the things that it touches. So when people start to say that it's behavior analysis, now I have to look at it from this lens. So I'm not trying to be a master. I'm trying to, to thoroughly understand it and look at it from our lens, from our behavior analytic lens. Uh, and right now I have a lot of questions about it. So, and I don't see a lot of people answering those questions. And when they do, uh, they tend to get either the YouTube videos pulled down or they get berated. So I think there needs to be more people asking these questions, not to challenge or to dig at it or anything like that, but to better understand. Uh, and I would be great if we could have had an act expert in this. Uh, no one reached out to us to, to join the panel in terms of that, but hey, maybe in a future rant, we could have someone come on for that. I think you guys both did a great job addressing the question and it was all things that I was going to say, so. All right, next question. Uh, and if for some reason we, we don't fully answer the questions that you put up uh, and I dismiss them or say that we've answered them, uh, throw it up again and we'll, and we'll circle back around to it. Um, this next one from an anonymous attendee, if I picture something in my mind, am I doing act? Uh, that's a tough question. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was a serious one or if it wasn't serious or if someone was just trying to get Justin to debate with them since he is a master debater. Uh, in terms of his social media presence. But I think um, the tricky part there is, well, we have to look at mind from behavior analytic perspective. And again, I, I'm not necessarily sure what doing ACT is. If we're saying ACT is a therapy or ACT is a training, then we should be able to point to it and say, that is ACT, you, we're doing ACT. Um, but I don't know that we're in that, in that spot yet. Next question is, isn't Pat Fryman a psychologist? I'll take, I'll take this one. I, I, okay. Once again, I don't know how this comes across. I believe he's a psychologist. I don't know if he's a licensed psychologist. I don't want to misspeak, but I'm pretty sure he is. But I don't know if that's even relevant if you're a psychologist. I'm thinking of some psychologists who are also excellent behavior analysts or, beha or behaviorists. I mean, you can go back to Watson, Wolfie, Richard Foth, Beth Elder, Osra, Bob Cagle. Uh, Barbara Etzel, Ivar Lovas, John McCacken, Ron Leaf, Tris Smith, uh, were all psychologists. Uh, and I think Mary Jane Weiss as well, but I'm not for sure if she's a licensed psychologist either. Uh, and these are psychologists who are also behavior analysts. And when you look at their work, once again, I think they're objectively defining the IVs, the DVs, and they're being very conceptually systematic with what they're doing within our field. So I have nothing against people being psychologists uh, and being behavior analysts. I wish more of us uh, were, had a broader area of expertise and education in general psychology and that stuff. Our problem is that, once again, for me, or at least my problem, 
is how it's being defined and talked about. Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree with that. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a psychologist. Uh, I think like Justin said, there were lots of early behavior analysts that had, that was their background because there weren't training programs in behavior analysis. So the majority of people that came into behavior analysis at that time uh, were psychologists by, by training, but the, but they didn't necessarily start uh, doing research on things that didn't meet the, the qualifications to call it behavior analytic research. So uh, I think they, they abandoned some of those um, while we're looking at consciousness or we're looking at uh, mediating behaviors or what's going on inside the skin as a cause for the overt behavior and the overt behavior isn't important. Now they started studying behavior for behavior's sake. So I, I, maybe Pat Fryman's a psychologist, but he's also a thoroughgoing behavior analyst. And I think you can see that in all of his work and, and all the things he talks about. I encourage everyone to go look at the, there's a, hour-long documentary from, um, from Ryan and Sarah Trotman. Um, I forget the third guy's name. Oh, man. Oh, well. But I hope everybody goes and looks at that. And you can, you can see how Pat Fryman is a thoroughgoing behavior analyst. Next one. I see values as a... We're, we're, we could have just broken this up across rants and, and go for each part of the, the hexaflex. So here's another one on values. I see values as verbally uh, established motivation. I encourage you to go read that paper that I posted in the chat and see the discussions um, from people within the, the ACT field, I guess I could call it, um, that are talking about how, well, it's not necessarily just a, an established, a, a motivating operation. Uh, and I caution myself saying that knowing that Bob Ross is in the audience because he'll probably <laughs> go off on a whole thing about motivating operations. Um, but I think here's the problem is if, like we would all agree on what behavior is. We would all agree on what a response is. We would all agree on what reinforcement is. So if values is this very specific thing and this important part of this hexaflex, um, we need to be able to, like there should be a pretty good, solid, universally agreed upon definition of what that actually is. Yep, I agree. I think that has been one of the definitions that's discussed um, is that it's a verbally established motivation, but then there's also some disagreement about all of that. So, and then and then it was added our value stimuli, right? And I think there's disagreement about that too. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've gone into um, workshops and trainings where one of the explanations is, yeah, it is stimuli. Um, and it's stimuli that uh, are in these equivalence classes of verbally constructed classes of delayed powerful positive reinforcers. But then that's a problem. So are they stimuli or are they reinforcers? Um, and if they are just those, then why do we need another explanation for that term? So, but again, it, it, if, it's, if it's just for social validity, then it's fine. But if, when you're saying it's behavior analysis, that's when it becomes a problem. Um, I just got the two minute mark. Let's, there's one more question. We're almost doing this, guys. Um, has there been any research on a component analysis on ACT? There's so much focus on metaphors in ACT. Have metaphors been assessed in a component analysis? I think the answer is likely no, because there's a lack of clarity on what the components of ACT actually are. Julia, you wanna take that one? Sure, um, I have not seen a component analysis of ACT. I do think that when you look at the independent variables of the ACT articles, um, they do lead you to a lot of their metaphors or exercises about certain things. So that seems to be what is in there. Um, but there also seems to be a lot of other things going on in the intervention section of what they list that isn't really clearly defined. Um, 
So you're right, the answer is no. Um, there is a lack of clarity on what the components are and I haven't seen an analysis of everything that maybe ACT entails. Yeah, I would say in, in our review uh, of the literature, we didn't find anything uh, in terms of a component analysis there. That doesn't necessarily mean that something wouldn't exist in the, th in the ACT therapy literature because we specifically narrowed it down to training because um, people have espoused that acceptance commitment training is this thing that is behavior analytic and ACT therapy is psychoanalytic, so it's not behavior analysis. So we didn't dive into that. We dived into what people were saying were, was behavior analytic about this. And we haven't found anything. Yeah, I, and I will say if ACT therapy wants to stay in the realm of psychotherapy and it has enough evidence in that field to support it, they, I'm not familiar with like the tenets of what they consider like maybe evidence-based in their field or what they're looking for in all of their papers. Um, so if they want to keep in like the psychotherapy realm, I think that's great. And I think it's great if it works for people like you were saying, Joe, too, but one of our I think we all agree that our concern is that it's bleeding over into the field of behavior analysis and it doesn't fit with the core principles of behavior analysis, um, our kind of adherence to evidence-based practice and applied behavior analysis in the tenets of kind of what was described in by Barry Wolf and Risley in their two papers yeah. on the dimensions. So, But there is a whole lot about metaphors in these books from a long, long time ago. And I encourage people to go look at that because there are behavior analytic descriptions as to what metaphors are in here. So maybe that would be useful if someone wants to go down that route uh, to do that research. Because I think it's, it's useful research. So I think what you two primarily have done today and then me just adding a little here and there, um, is really just taking a critical look at this. I think a lot of times with most procedures is people um, don't speak up and have a professional discourse over what's going on. And so I think we gave a different uh, opinion on it. And I think one of the important things, I believe it was you, Joe, said as new data comes in, as new evidence comes in, as new research comes in, maybe we're changing our mind and our tune what's happening. Maybe the next 10 or 15 studies are well operationally defined and their measures are well operationally defined, and maybe they change how they're talking about it. But at this point, I think it's fair to say we just have some concerns of what's going on, and especially that it's becoming more and more popular. And so I think that's what uh, we tried to lay out today for, for the audience members. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a great summary. And again, this wasn't like, we're not trying to bash it. It's trying to understand it from a behavior analytic perspective. Let's put our, our behavior analysis lenses on and look at this thing and then some questions arise. So let's talk about those questions and see how we can move forward with this, if it is behavior analysis. So with that, before I end, because you need the ending word, and I love having this where you guys just can't run out the door. You have to wait for that word to get your CEU. The, the virtual door? Yeah, yeah, you can't do it. Our next, um, our next rants with Justin and Joe are May 27th, Wednesday at 1 p.m. And we will have uh, a special guest lecture. Again, I think we like having guests. Uh, Let's us connect. It will be Dr. Ronald Leaf, uh, who is the co-author of the Me Book videotapes and was uh, the clinical director at the UCLA Young Autism Project. And he will be talking about fact versus fiction. This is a working title. Fact versus fiction, the UCLA Young Autism Project and Ivar Lovas. So there's a lot of people on social media that talk about what happened at UCLA or what Lovas did or didn't do. Ron was there during that time. Ron was integral in there. So he's going to kind of talk about what he sees uh, happen and kind of set the record straight for a lot of people. And then about um, 
areas of improvement and areas maybe of even regression since the late 70s and early 80s. And so I welcome everyone to go there. Remember, we do cap this. So once we put this live sometime this week, I would get on early uh, because we cap the number of people that can come into this. So with that, the ending word is evidence. Evidence. We thank you guys for your time. Remember, I will be giving CEUs sometime this weekend. And I think, you know, I wouldn't put it past us doing another one of these to touch on this because I think there is a lot that we haven't, we, we weren't able to touch on that we wanted to. So look, look for that in the future potentially too. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, Julia, for coming. Thank you.